Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Blair Kellison. Blair is the CEO of Traditional Medicinals, a mission-driven and fair trade wellness company based in Northern California. The company is now the fourth largest bagged tea company in the U.S. Blair made the best decision in 1995 by taking a 70% pay cut and moving from the corporate world to a mission-driven vegetarian food company. Welcome, Blair. Hey, thank you very much for having me today. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's a, it's a, an honor to be on it myself. Well, thank you, Blair. I, I want to just understand if, uh, what, what does traditional medicinals do? And I also want you, for those of us that are not familiar, to understand what does it mean when you talk about being a fair trade company? Great. So the company was founded in 1974 by a self-proclaimed uh, hippie, kind of a social activist, and a fourth-generation herbalist, and they they set out to kind of reinvigorate herbalism in the United States, and they created this this uh, uh, type of tea called a, uh, an herbal wellness tea, which means it has specific health benefit, and um, and that was really new back then. And there was there was basically like green tea, and there was black tea, and then there was a little bit of herbal tea from celestial seasoning, which would have been like peppermint and chamomile. But they came out with teas that help you sleep, teas for constipation, teas for a nursing mother. Really took herbalism and put it into a tea bag, and they did it in this social business model where they wanted to take in, they wanted to do two things. They wanted to uh, revitalize herbalism in America, and they wanted to reinvent the the business of medicine from the ground up, because about 50% of all medicines come from plants, still to this day. And they wanted to go out in those growing communities, and they really wanted to help those people uh, lift them up through their business. A lot of these herbs are grown in, in rural, impoverished areas around the world. The collectors are kind of a lower income job going out in the fields and while, while collecting herbs. And they really wanted to improve their lives. And, and back then, they didn't have a fair trade system. But fair trade is, was really a system set up so that in addition to buying something from somebody, you put money, you pay an extra premium on that. And that money goes into, their, into the group of uh, the group of all the collectors, and then they decide they could do a library. They might want to build restrooms out in their fields. Uh, there's all kinds of different things, but they decide what to do with that premium money, and that's organized through a, a, an organization called Fair Trade uh, Globally. Hmm. So interesting. So you're really uh, doing well and doing good at the same time. Um, I, I, I always that. say we're a, we're a we're a non-governmental organization disguised as a brand. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did you get originally get involved in the company? So I've been in the natural products industry for the last uh, 25 years, and so um, kind of knew about the company. And, and uh, I, I've, I've had the honor of being the first non-founder CEO of four companies now. So in our natural products industry, I'm kind of known as a person that can come in, uh, respect a founder, and transition them from kind of a command and control environment to an executive team run company. And and uh, Drake Sadler uh, gave me a call about 12 years ago, and we struck up a nice friendship, and um, it led to me coming here and in the company's 34th year as, as the first time he was not running the company. Wow. Uh, tremendous opportunity for you. Also, I'm sure, a challenge to, like you said, take it over from uh, a respected 
leader um, in the industry. How did you, and you've done that several times now, but how did you approach that and, as you say, transition from a more traditional command and control style environment to one that maybe was more collaborative? First of all, it's, whenever you're the CEO of a company with a founder, it's not your company. And you, you have to remember that you come to work every day and you stand not only on the shoulders of the founder, but you stand on the shoulders of all the people that came before you. And if you can have that attitude and you can take something that's that's good and make it better, uh, I think that's – CEOs go wrong because they, they tend to have big egos and they tend to want to take credit for things that they didn't do. And I think if you can let go of all of that, um, and then I'm a servant leader. So I hire people that are smarter than me, and I listen to them, and I empower them to make decisions. And so if you're a command and control person, no matter how great a founder is, whether you're Bill Gates or you're, or you're Drake Sadler who founded Traditional Medicinals, if you want to have a command and control structure, your organization is only going to be as good as you because you're telling everybody what to do. And so what I teach founders to do is, is – is, and it's hard for them to watch me do what I do, really hard for them because it's complete opposite of what they do. Mm-hmm. But I bring in people that are smarter than me, marketing, sales, IT, and then I listen to them, especially when I don't agree with them. And that's just – it's almost impossible for a founder to do that. And also – uh, a founder's business is very personal to them. If you say something negative to a founder, you're telling them their kid's ugly. And as a CEO for the founder, you can come in and be just much more objective about the business decisions, and and you can just you can you can separate that. That doesn't mean you're not mission and value oriented, but you can separate the personal part of it. It's uh, a business is for a founder is a complete reflection of them as a person. Everything about it. I think that's so true. Our businesses are a reflection of the founder and or the leader at the time. And I think these founders who brought you in were very lucky to have you. And it took a lot of humility for you to be able to go in there and realize that it wasn't yours and and to go down that challenging road of transitioning the company to a, a, a different and maybe better way to run the company long term. For the for traditional medicinals today. Are you guys a manufacturer, distributor, uh, and then sort of size and scope, whether it's revenues, number of employees? Give me a sense of that. Sure. So we, we passed $100 million a couple of years ago. Uh, we've got 200 employees. We manufacture almost all our NTs except for Canada. So we've got a factory. I'm, I'm, I'm at the factory today because that's the only place that's operating right now during COVID-19. And we'll make about 600 million bags of tea at our factory uh, annually here in Northern California. It runs up 24 hours a day. Our products are sold in 70,000 retail outlets in North America between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. And um, we really like to control everything about the company from the field all the way through to the manufacturing, all the way through to the cup of tea that the consumers get, both from a social perspective of what's the carbon footprint, what's the are people being taken care of along the way, and then from a quality perspective, is this going to meet our standards? Is this tea going to do what it's said to do? We've followed this herb all the way through all its steps. So it's really important hmm. to us. So Now, are there some um, retail brands that we would be familiar with that you produce? Well, our, our brand is Traditional Medicinals, but we're, we're, okay. we're in some ways we're better known for some of our teas. Uh, we have a, a, a laxative tea called Smooth Move. We have a, a sleep tea called Nighty Night. We have a, a, a tea for sore throats called Throat Coat that every major singer and every green room in America has for, for people to drink before they go on stage called Throat Coat. 
And then we have a nursing tea called Mother's Milk, which is the number one lactation tea in the United States. And um, so we're kind of in some ways better known for those, I guess you'd call them sub-brands, than our name, Traditional Medicinals. Yeah, they're real niches. I love that smooth move. That's a great one. Um, so uh, as you said, we're, we, I'm talking to you in the middle of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic that we're going through that's uh, impacted not only all of us in our personal lives, but in those of us in business and our business lives as well. How have you guys approached that at your company? Well, we, we followed the guidelines to, to some degree. There's legal guidelines about having our office closed or open. We are deemed an essential business, so our manufacturing was allowed to keep running. Um, but so we kind of have two sets of operations. One is manufacturing. One is kind of our sales marketing the office. So we closed the office. It's been probably six, seven weeks now. We have had these fires in Northern California each of the last couple of years that have been pretty devastating and closed our business <coughs> for a couple of weeks at a time. And interestingly, those really prepared us for this because we were able to work remotely. We had we had 40 or 50 laptops on hand, which is kind of unheard of for a company of our size. So we were able to get a laptop to everybody uh, during this time, get everybody trained, get everybody up on our server uh, from the office. And so the accounting, the transactions, the orders, the logistics, moving things to the warehouse, all that's being done from people's homes, which is quite amazing. And I've been personally uh, spending all my time at the factory, and we've kept the factory open Interestingly, at this time, you know, we're actually getting an increase in orders, and so we're busier than ever. But our employees were really scared to come to work at the, especially at the very beginning. They were the only people going to work. Their friends, their family, their neighbors were like, "What are you doing going to work? No one's supposed mm. to be working," because there's there's very few businesses that were deemed essential. And so, I've been trying to come and six o'clock in the morning and say thank you to the night shift when they're leaving, the morning shift coming in. We've been providing lunch and meals and um, for them and, and uh, just really trying to thank them and appreciate them. And, and the whole company is rallying around. The number one question I get asked from people in the office is how people in the factory are doing. And that's really, you know, that, that was not the case uh, six months ago. It's not that we didn't care about the factory, but it tends to be a separate operation. And now everyone realizes, uh, and I think this is going on around the country, everybody's realizing the importance of the frontline people, the people that bag your groceries and the people that, that make your food and get it to you uh, are pretty darn important. It's a really great uh, outlook. And, and I'm glad that all those, all of our frontline people um, are getting more attention than they ever have, and it'll uh, uh, raise our level of appreciation for them going forward. I've talked to a lot of companies and leaders who are, who are using this time, uh, whether they're busier or less busy, but this kind of pause to say, we're learning about ways that we could even reinvent our company going forward. Are there any big things that you guys have thought about that will actually change the way you do business forever? I, 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 it's interesting. I, I ran it. I was riding my bike on the weekend. I ran into a climatologist. It's a friend of a friend of mine. And he was all depressed. He's like, oh, I said, this is going to be great for the environment. And he's like, no, it's going to be terrible. He said that uh, he goes in, in a month, everybody's going to go back to all the things they used to do. And now there's no money left. People don't have any money. Governments don't have any money. There's no money to fund everything. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not looking at it like that at all. I said, I think I said, I can tell you as the CEO of traditional medicinals, our carb 
carbon footprint will permanently be smaller as a result of this COVID-19. I said, we are going to travel less. We're going to let people work from home more. They're going to be less stressed, time on the road and commuting. It's going to be more efficient for them to work from home. We are going to uh, have our salespeople travel a lot lot less. We're going to develop relationships with our buyers so that we don't travel all the way across the country for 30-minute appointments at a buyer. I said, we've got our accounting department has been forced to go paperless because we're all outside the office and they have committed that we're never going to use paper when we go back into the office. I think there's a lot of positive things. Are going to, I think we're going to have a greater emphasis on our frontline employees and realize the important role that they play in the company. And I'm actually very optimistic about COVID-19. I'm, I'm surely saddened by the people that are dying and the, and, the, and the casualties of it. But I think the long-term effects of it dovetailed with the, the increasing tipping point we're getting to on climate change and the stress level that people have and and people's desire to work from home, I actually think we're going to come out of this much better as a much better business and as a much better economy than than prior. I'm really optimistic. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. I, I think you're right. I think that if we could, if we think about how we we get better in life and in business, it's because of challenges or crises that we put ourselves through, and and then we're resilient and and we come out on the other end better. It, it would be nice if we could do it without such a human toll. Uh, that we have this time. Um, but I think overall, as we look back, that you're absolutely right. And, and you know, your perspective, your leadership, being a non-founder leader multiple times in companies, your your sense of, of servant leadership all came from somewhere. I want to take you back, Blair, a little bit, maybe even to your childhood. Tell me about your, your parents, where you grew up, what kind of early influences or stories that might have reflected on the leader you have become. Sure. I, I think I, I'm going to uh, my experiences really are going to be more around things that I don't know if they help me. They help me get, get the skills needed as a leader more so than I was around great leaders, I guess. Mm-hmm. I had great parents. I was one of five kids. You grew up in a family of five kids. You're learning how to get along with other people. You're learning how to negotiate things. You don't get everything you want. You get what you can. There's a bunch of stuff that goes with that. Um, a couple of great parents that that uh, really kind of made uh, the other thing that I, uh, my parents, one of the biggest things my parents did is is they made each of us feel like we were the only kid, and and that's pretty hard to do in a group of five. And and I I think that's a great leadership lesson for me is is you're you're leading a group of 200 people, but to everybody it's an individual experience for them, and you need to try your best to make an individual experience for them. But but really. Um, it's interesting. Uh, my childhood is is going to be a different story, I think, than probably some of your other people that you interview. I, I was I don't I, I was generally a follower. I was kind of a middle of the pack kid. I got along with everybody. I was the kid who got along with everybody on my track team. Got along with the cool kids. Got along with the not so cool kids. I, I just kind of vacillated between different groups. Um, I was a B student, so. There was always a group of people smarter than me. I was always trying to um, – I, I never thought I had anything figured out at all. I was always trying to get help from other people and always asking for help for others because I knew there was a whole bunch of people that had a bunch of answers that I didn't have. And um, and so really I, I, I kind of learned these – I didn't realize it at the time at all, but I was learning a lot of the skills – uh, that you need to be a leader to 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 be vulnerable and to have humility and to 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 uh, get a group of people together and ask them what they think and that a group of people can make a better decision one than one person and at the time growing up I didn't I didn't realize that that's what I was learning. Those are great uh, 
great lessons. Again, we don't think about it at the time, but now when you're kind of reflecting and so why am I like this? We, we, we think about, uh, those experiences that we had. What about, uh, any early jobs or early school, any, sure. anything that comes yeah. to mind there? Yeah. And, and then just another comment on that. So I, it, it's interesting. I, I think that as an A student, sometimes it can be harder to be a leader because you, you did always have the answers and you didn't ask for help. And, and I think the A students don't develop, they, they're, they're smart and they're they're because what happens in your career is sometime in your late twenties or thirties, you move from, you, you basically, everything that you're successful in life is about you. You, you go to high school and you get good grades, you get into a good college, you get good grades in college, you get a good job out of college, you get a good job out of college, you do well in your projects, you get promoted. And then at some point you, there's this great transition and it's all about what you can get done through others and all of a sudden, you make this big shift from uh, subject matter expertise propelling your your life and your career to um, leadership and ability to get things done through others propelling you through life. And that's a huge transition for an A student, and that's really hard for them. But me, as a B student, that was a pretty easy transition because I'd been doing that my whole life. And so even out of college, I worked at Ernst & Young, huge company, 20,000 people, and you know, I, I was a decent, uh, you got to be a pretty decent person to, to get a job there, but I wasn't a superstar there. There were lots of superstars at that place. They hired the very best of the best. I was kind of the guy that was lucky to get a job there. And then I, I got an MBA at the University of Chicago and, um, again, a really good school, one of the top 10 MBA schools. I was definitely not the smartest kid in that program, but I got into it. Um, but, but I, um, then I went to work in marketing out of that and got a job with Nestle as a brand manager. And again, huge company. And um, I just, you know, in, in those first almost 10 years of my career, I really didn't have, I was at such big organizations. I didn't have access to the CEOs or the leaders or the executive team. We just were too big of an organization. And I really didn't develop a lot of trust for them. I didn't find them to be transparent. I found that a lot of the things they told us were not true. Um, and, and so I, I, I think, and, and I saw part of it's because of the numbers and part of it's because of the culture, but I just, I kind of learned how not to be a leader and I kind of learned how not to treat people. And I didn't realize it at the time, but, but I just remember, I, I think that's those, those, those experiences really led me. I think I, I worked for literally the largest financial services company in the world and the largest food company in the world. And then I left there. You, you said in my introduction, I took this 70% pay cut, kind of went to work for one of the smallest companies in the world. It was like a $25 million company with a couple hundred employees. And that, it wasn't until I got there that I really started thinking about leadership. What led you to make that switch? Because you, what you said is really all of your experience was with these two huge companies. Something led you through the experience to realize that maybe it could be different some, somewhere else. And you made this jump to something completely different, smaller, but unknown. What yep. gave you the courage to make that yeah. choice? Great question. A single most important thing that ever happened in my career. So I, I, I'm a Midwesterner, and I moved to California to work for Nestle in Los Angeles. I'd always been a runner and an athlete, but never really associated health so much with, with being an athlete. And I moved to California. It's very health-oriented, food, diet, uh, mindset, all of that is a reflection of your health. So that started to influence me. And then I – I don't even know how this happened, but I stumbled in, in, in the early times at Nestle. 
I stumbled into the 19th Street Natural Foods Co-op in Santa Monica, California, which was the, the, the back then that was what natural food stores were. They were all co-ops. And this store still exists today in Santa Monica. And I, I just saw all these organic and vegetarian and fair trade and healthy and high protein vegetarian products. And um, it just really clicked with me. And it, it just made, it's brought this whole connection from the health to the food. And then here I am working at Nestle, you know, selling granola bar or, uh, you know, Nestle quick and, <laughs> you know, uh, Butterfingers and stuff like that. And, 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 and I just fell in love with these products and, um, I, I became a vegetarian. I became in my, my diet became really healthy, but, but more than anything else, I was like, I have a passion for this. This is, this is a reflection of who I I've always been my, my athleticism, taking care of myself. Now I'm going to incorporate my diet and into my exercise. And I just fell in love with it. And, um, and then I, I had this epiphany. It was like, Nestle, and also just to be just to be transparent, I mean, I was a pretty mediocre performer at Nestle. I mean, I was doing okay. Again, you got to be a decent person to get a job there, but I wasn't a superstar. I wasn't going to become a vice president of the grocery division one day at Nestle. <clears throat> so I was a kind of a middle of the pack guy, and you know, it's never fun to be in the middle of the pack. And then I and then I just I just couldn't really get behind these products I was selling. And then here I was falling in love with all these other products, and I kind of two things. I was like. These companies need me. Nestle doesn't need me. They're going to be fine without me. But these companies really need me to help get the word out about how great these products are. They're fantastic. Just nobody knows about them. And uh, and that's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> and so I <clears> – <throat> And I also felt like I wanted to do something that I could feel better about. Like I wanted to feel like I was really contributing. I literally took like seven or eight products out of my cabinet, my home in Santa Monica. And I wrote to the president of these companies and said, hey, your products are fantastic. And I bet you need help in sales and marketing, logistics and distribution. And I said, I work at a company that's fantastic at sales and marketing, logistics and distribution. And our products are pretty mediocre. I said, could I come talk to you? And they all mm-hmm. said, sure. And I flew up to Northern California and a bunch of different places. And I met with these founders and I said, this is what I want to do. I said, I'll do it for free. I have enough money saved up. I'll do it for free to show you I can do it. <laughs> and that's how I got into the industry. Well, there's so many lessons to be learned from that. Uh, one is that, uh, like I've experienced in my own career, uh, your passion isn't something that you necessarily realize uh, early in life. And it comes to you later on and it hits you there visiting that market, which by the way, I'm familiar with because I lived in <laughs> Santa Monica for many years. Uh, so, uh, and, and uh, so one is just finding your passion. I can just sense how the energy in you completely changed and that you didn't really even realize until you were in that moment. The other thing was the that you you reached out to these companies proactively that you you just said, you know, you're not waiting for, for them. You just said, I'm going to just contact some of these companies. I'm going to start conversations. Uh, you put yourself out there, um, offered, and you realize that many people, whether it's the leaders of those companies or whoever you were talking to, are, are appreciate that sense of someone that is um, being directive um, in their own career and saying, you know, they'll, they'll help you. They'll find ways to help you. So a lot of great uh, lessons there as well. Can you think of something, Blair, as you look back, maybe an unexpected learning from an unexpected source? Well, I, I, I go back to, I think the most unexpected thing about my leadership was I would have never expected that being a B student 
would lead to making me a great leader. And, and that's really when I go back and I think about, I was always focusing on other people, always thinking about who else had the answers, always thinking about how things looked around me because I was in the middle of it. I was leading it or running it. And, um, th- those are, those are, those experiences. Uh, and just some of my failures, some of that, those hard times at Nestle and the hard times Ernst and Young, when I just felt like I just wasn't contributing enough or I wasn't really being my best person, those turned out to be my greatest lessons and, and strengths and, and my ability to have empathy for others and, and put myself in their place. I would have never thought that that's what I was learning at the time. I just thought it was going through a hard time. And I just thought I was a B student. I just wasn't that smart. And <laughs> here I was, here I was really learning how to be a leader, uh, unbeknownst to me. Now you talked about how f- four different times you've had the opportunity to be the first non-founder CEO in these companies, all of which were uh, mission-driven base. So there's a lot of uh, luck involved there too. And, and these great matches that you have found, have you ever found or been in a position where one of these matches uh, or your ability to transition the CEO's mindset into this more collaborative way of leading didn't work out? No, I've been, I've been fortunate. You know, I think, I think I've been put through the ringer for six to 12 months at each of those jobs, because again, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the <laughs> Drake Sadler is the founder of our company, and we have a wonderful friendship. I mean, I, I don't know how long I was here, a year or two or something. And he just came to me one day. He's just like, I just I, – I can't do what you do. I could never do what you – I can't stand that you sit in a room and ask everybody's opinion all the time about what we should do. <laughs> just tell them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but 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 those qualities that enable a founder to start the company, and I mean, does, does the world really need another tea? Do we need another cereal? Do we need another laptop? But, but these people that just like, no, I'm going to make a better one, and so it's that it's that it's that that mindset that get, enables them to start those companies, which I don't have because I'm the guy that's like, hey, we don't need another soup, we don't need another this. <laughs> every, every, you know, I got all the reasons why it's not going to work, but. So they're the ones to start it, and then I'm the one to to make it reach its full potential. It's a really nice uh, friendship, and it's a it's a really it's just a marriage between the two. They, they can do things I can't do, and I can do things I can't do. And as long as we can get along, but I, I've always had to prove myself. I've I've been fortunate that here, here's the thing though that 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 that's so easy about what I do. These companies that I go work for have amazing products. They have amazing missions and values oriented around them. Just nobody knows about them. So they don't attract talented people and they don't have good bank financing and they don't have good sales and marketing and distribution. But I can tell you, we've transformed traditional medicinals from 20,000 stores to 70,000 stores and a $20 million business to a $120 million business. And we've gone from 60 employees to 200 employees. And I can tell you all these great changes about this company, our mission, our values, and our purpose, and our formulas never changed during that whole time. So talk about how you did that, how you articulated the purpose. If the product hasn't changed, how, how did you really transition and build that very special culture? You, you, the culture w- was really here. I mean, we had a good mission and values. Of, of a, it was more being able to expand it from 60 to 100 to, to 200 people. Um, but the, 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 the really, a lot of it was easy from a, I shouldn't say easy, but like an awareness. I mean, I would go to the, 
again, you talk about my passion. I mean, I would go to the publics of the world and I would sit in front of that grocery store, which sells 7% of all the groceries and be like, listen, we, you know, maybe we were 50 million then we'd been 25 million. I was just like, I am not going to be a successful CEO until my product is on your shelf and your publics in your tea set. And they're just like, no, we're not taking it in. You're like a niche little product. And I went there year after year after year. And now we're, and now we're the number two selling tea in all the publics. They think we're fantastic, (laughs) but I was not giving up. Then I had a buyer once tell me, he said, he said, if I say no, uh, you're coming back next year, aren't you? I said, yes, I will be back here next year. <laughs> so, as, so as you, a way to you, get you to not come back. Yeah, if you if you have something to offer. So the the, cha- the biggest challenge is the mix between the, 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 the mission, the values, and the purpose, people, and the talent. So like our founders always giving me a hard time about – uh, in, in, in a rightful way about like, hey, we're interviewing someone from Nestle maybe and like, well, I don't think they're mission driven enough. I was like, listen, most people in life don't work for mission driven companies because most talented people, there's not that many really good big companies that are doing that. Maybe a Patagonia and there's a few other ones. But I said most people want to work for a mission values company, but they don't. So they don't know how to. So we have to teach them. And that's really what we've done is we we bring the people in who have a desire to work for a mission-driven company, but they don't really know what that means. And then we teach them how that means. That means like it's your values. Like you can't yell at somebody. I don't care if you're the president of the company. You can't yell at another employee and work here. This is what respect means. This is how respect works in the workplace. This is how collaboration works. And these are our values. And we're going to hire you on these. We're going to review you on these. And if you don't adhere to them, we call it the no jerk rule. And, and no disrespect to anybody who's Democrat or Republican, but Donald Trump couldn't get a job at traditional medicinals. Even though he got elected president of the United States, he doesn't have the values that we require. Mm-hmm. How have you been able to not just deal with the founder and go through that six or 12 months, but you're now thrown in as an unknown. And I know you've been here at this company for, for a long time and other companies before that, but how did you convince the frontline workers that you were the one to lead them going forward? With my heart, with being real. I mean, that's the thing of that. That again, I didn't realize growing up in a family of five in Indianapolis, Indiana, in a middle class family. Um, I'm a real person. I, I don't get ahead of myself. I can speak to people uh, in a way that they want to be spoken to, or I can connect with them individually, and uh, and at least give me a chance. And I think the combination of that. And and then also um, and then having success. I mean, I, I had a review not too long ago, and they went around and talked to all kinds of different people in the company. And well, one of my favorite guys here is one of our guys who works construction at the at the site. And and they and they said, well, what do you think about Blair as the CEO? He said he knows my name, he knows my wife's name, he knows my dog's name is Merlin. He knows he got hit by a car last year, and he always asks about my dog. That's all I need from my CEO. <laughs> that was yeah. like, that's one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten. It's a great, it's a great compliment, and uh, and and people don't realize that it's really as simple as that. That's what leadership is about: is just showing people that you care about them in the yep. totality of their lives, showing that you you know about them enough 
and and knowing about what's important in their life, whether it's their family or their dog or whatever it is, uh, yep. that that had a huge impact. And uh, what a great way to to hear that kind of feedback. Um, like like I'm I'm not going into the plant right now. I come to the offices of the plant, but I'm not going in because I, I I don't need to be out there, and I'm one more person that could get somebody sick. But I I tell you, it's 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 Tuesday morning, and it's six o'clock this morning. I was in the parking lot saying goodnight to, to people who were leaving the night shift and thanking them and saying good morning to the people that are coming in for the day shift. And, and I get a lot of credibility for standing out in that parking lot because right. it's all I can do, right? It's all you can do, but that's leadership. Sometimes it's just, it's just stand in the parking lot. Yeah. Well, I remember in one of our recent um, virtual leadership programs with our small giants uh, leadership academy one of the, an emerging leader a next generation leader who's going through this training program and also obviously going through the pandemic learned this lesson about what it meant to be a leader and he said you know we all we all of a sudden sent all these people home to work from home and there were single moms who now had all these additional responsibilities and i realized that the best thing i could do was just call them and say how you doing and just listen and be a sounding board. And he said, wow, it just, I didn't realize that that's really all I needed to do. It wasn't about work or productivity or anything. It was just about listening. And he learned, uh, again, another wonderful lesson about leadership. Uh, as you think about your own leadership journey, Blair, you've had great success and, and you will continue to have that. But have you, can you think about a part of leadership that you think you still need to improve upon? You know, I, I, I really look <laughs> my answer, my short answer to that would probably be everything. And, and from the perspective, I, I tell people all the time, being a leader is like being Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day. You could literally do every day over and do it better. There's just so many different aspects to it, whether it's the relationships or the strategy or the. And so I think it's just something you can never master and you have to just keep getting better at every day. And the good thing is every day you get a chance to get better and just keep reviewing yourself and and um, and just trying to, to do it a little bit better the next day. And that's kind of the blessing and the curse of le leadership is that you can literally spend the, the blessing, I think, is, is you can literally spend your entire life working. on. It's not something you ever master and get bored with. Uh, and the curse is you're just never going to be as good at if you could live three lifetimes, you'd be better at it than if you just live one lifetime, as long as you keep working at it. Yeah, that's right. So finally, what kind of advice would you give to someone that's young and, and maybe starting out in their career? You were one that uh, learned a lot along the way, went from the big company to the small company, taking over for founders uh, an, in a unique perspective and something that you have a lot to be proud of. But you got there's a lot of people out there that would look to you and say, wow, I'd love to follow a path like that. What kind of advice would you give to them? Sure. Let me start by saying that this my passion in life is helping other people find their passion. I, I talk to over 200 people a year, um, giving them career advice, company advice, whatever that is. Anybody who wants to contact me can find me on LinkedIn um, and they can contact me, tell them they, they you heard me on this podcast. So I know who you are and I'll make time to talk to you. I drive to work uh, 30 to 45 minutes each way every day. And there's nothing on the radio that would ever be more interesting to me than to talking to you 
about your career or f- helping you find your passion. I literally do this a couple hundred times a year, and I love it. Um, and uh, but as, as far and I've also had the honor of giving a couple of college commencement addresses where I've given sort of all my advice, and you can find those speeches on my LinkedIn page, and you may find those of interest as well. But if I had to break down a few nuggets. Um, don't listen to me on this podcast or listen to anyone else Paul has on this podcast and try to be like us. Listen to us and try to be inspired to be like you. Leadership styles are they're just as ubiquitous as the personalities. You got to be you. So be inspired to be like you in life and you'll be you'll be amazed at what that gets you. The other good advice I get feedback on is just keep learning. Continuous learners are actually the happiest people on earth. Every week you get two paychecks at your job. One is money and one is experience. Always take the job with the biggest experience paycheck that will lead to the most happiness. Um, way leads to way. Everybody wants to know and figure, well, how do I get to where you got, Blair? I had – there's no path. Listen, you just got to take the next step. Each time you take a step down the path, a whole new set of possibilities is revealed to you. If you don't move, you're going to be stuck with all the same opportunities. But just just move. Just move down the path, and all kinds of new things will reveal themselves to you. That's what happened with me. I, I made that big jump to the vegetarian food company, and a whole new world opened up for me. Would have never happened if I would have never left Nestle. So I'm a marketing guy, and there's four Ps of marketing. But my four Ps for success are persistence, patience, passion, and purpose. Everybody's got persistence and they want to really hard, try hard. Patience is the, really the key that makes it work. Being patient has been a big success for me working with founders. I can't go in and I always tell them like when I come into these companies, it's like I, my bowl of change is a big bowl of broccoli and the founder, I'm going to feed the mm-hmm. founder a bowl of broccoli. I got to do it one spoon at a time and I can't shove too much in there or spit it all out. So patience is really important. Find your passion and find your purpose. And then the other thing that's interesting is just because you're really good at something doesn't mean that's what you should be doing. I was a pretty decent accountant, passed the CPA exam. I just didn't really like it. And I could have stayed in that. But as my, you know, my dad was like, you're quitting a better job than I've ever had. I was like, but I don't like it. Um, and then the other, the last piece I'd say is, so find your talents, you know, in your head, what are you good at and find your passions in your heart? What do you really like to do and find a way to connect those two? I did that through food and changing the world through the food we eat and the environment and the, 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 the health and the environment of, of vegetarian food and healthy food. I was able to find that thing for me, but find, find the thing that connects your head, what you like to do with your passions. And I can tell you that's what will lead you to a purpose purposeful, fulfilled life. And it's an amazing, magical feeling. And and your your dream job is if you're in college uh, or you're in graduate school, I can tell you your dream job is not at the career center. (laughs) You know, uh, so many uh, inspiring words there. And and I think the best thing that you offered up is to have people reach out to you so that you could uh, give them that half hour on your drive uh, to help find their passion. And um, another long lesson learned for me over the years is just finding those mentors and people that I could reach out to that had more success than me, who were always willing to just share advice. Uh, and in many times, it wasn't necessarily that I learned something new. It was advice that that got me go be- to go back and trust my gut, like you said, and to be myself. Uh, so uh, what a great offer. Thank you for doing that. I, I want to... <laughs> I feel like I, sometimes I feel like I'm the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> like yeah. You, you don't really give anything to anyone. You just teach them to, to – you just help them 
see that they can't see themselves, what's good in them or what they like to do. And you just help them help themselves. And that, that's what's magical about it is I, I'm not doing anything but helping them help themselves. Yeah. But at the end of the day, so gratifying for you as well. Um, I want to I want to uh, leave with these five quick hit questions, Blair, kind of like the association game. Um, can you name a leader you look up to? I'm a big fan of Martin Luther King, and I'm a big fan of Abraham Lincoln. I, I think Martin Luther King really inspired people in, in a way uh, with some issues that were really challenging and made them mainstream. And, and I think what I love about Abraham Lincoln is the way he kept his enemies close to him. Hmm. Good. Both very good ones. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? My my three favorite business books of all time are are Good to Great and Built to Last, both Jim Collins books. I really I'm not a huge fan of business books overall. Those two are great. And another one called The Goal. And those are those are the three my three favorite business books. I remember that The Goal uh blue yeah, book. Yeah, it's an old book. It's um, kind of a yeah. corny story, but uh it's 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 a like twenty year old book. It's still one of the best business books ever written. Yeah, that's right. And I'm a big fan of Jim Collins. How about your all time favorite movie? Um, the razor's edge. Oh, okay. That's first one for that one. Good one. Uh, you have a favorite TV series to binge watch? Uh, right now it's the good place. Oh, good. And lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Um, gosh, that's a good one. Um, I know how to juggle. Hey, so do I, (laughs) uh, haven't used it in a long time. Um, but uh, I, I just taught my 14 year old to juggle. So I, I feel good about that. She's oh, loving that's it. A, that's a great idea, especially right now. We have time to do that. <laughs> um, well, well, Blair, just so much to reflect on. I want to share a few thoughts of, of what I heard today that I think inspired me and I think will inspire many others. I think, you know, just the way you guys and your company are handling uh, the crisis right now. Um, is, is really in many ways the same as the lessons you've learned about leadership overall, this, this move to finding people that were smarter than you and put them around you to move from a command and control environment to one that's much more collaborative uh, and realizing that there's many positive things that are going to come out of this crisis and in your case, impact on, on the carbon footprint and uh, the, just the lives of the people that you work with or that you serve. Uh, I, I liked how the lessons you learned as a kid being one of five and and put in this position of, of being forced to negotiate. Uh, but I loved how your parents made you feel like you were, you were the only kid and, and did that with each of you, which is a really great um, parenting lesson um, and also just a great leadership lesson because if we can make every employee feel like they're the only employee, we are showing um, great leadership there. Uh, you showed a lot of vulnerability and humility and just you called yourself a, a middle of the pack guy, never a superstar, B student. Um, but you were self-aware enough to know that you didn't have all the answers. And so you sought information, you sought knowledge and learning from other people. And uh, and that has served you obviously so well. Uh, and even though you went to work for uh, the big companies, for Ernst & Young, for Nestle, uh, you did realize that Maybe there was there was another way you became a little bit disenchanted with these very big companies and the disconnection between the leaders and and what you were experiencing on a day to day basis. But like many of us, uh, it hit you one day when you were at this you know natural natural food place in Santa Monica and and got bit by the bug of of health and 
and natural food. And, and so you just found your passion and you acted on that to reach out to these companies. Um, and, and you kind of found your purpose. And uh, somehow you ended up in the situation of being uh, the first time CEO for companies that were founded uh, by others. But in all cases, these were mission-driven companies and founders that had their own level of trust to allow you, and I'm sure over time that trust built, as you said, you know, there's another way to grow and, and what you've built is great, but I think I can come up with a way to scale this culture. And scaling culture is one of the most difficult things to do in any organization, and you've been able to do it um, multiple times. Um, ultimately, you've been able to attract people and teach them what it means to work for a mission, mission-driven company. But you've just done that by being yourself, by being a real person. I, I love the story you told about the employee who rated you highly by saying, uh, the reason is because he knew my dog's name, right? Um, just so simple. Uh, and sometimes we overcomplicate it. And when you talked about even business books, you know, I've always seen these big models and algorithms for how to be an effective leader. And I just said, you know what, that doesn't make sense to me. It seems so much more simple. And you've been able to reflect that on the way that, that you lead. And now what's so nice that in the position you're in, you're able to continue your passion, not only in the products and services that traditional medicinals uh, produces and distributes, but these couple hundred people every year who you get to talk to, to help find their passion and to share your lessons with them to continue to learn, to continue to take the next step and follow these four P's, persistence, patient, pa passion, and purpose. Um, just so, so good um, and so simple. And if we could simplify that in the way we treat each other, like you have done all along, the world's going to be a better place. So I think uh, certainly your company is going to be a better place once this is all behind us and you're going to continue to make uh, an impact uh, across the world. So Blair, thank you so much uh, for having the time to join me on the podcast today. Paul, it's been an honor. I, I really have such great respect for you and this podcast. It's, it's, it's a real life treat to be able to be a guest. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time.